Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, it's been a crazy week. I, I just got back from Buenos Aires, uh, an amazing wedding, Mazel Tov, and uh, some, some funny sh- stories to share. So, And then... Uh, then we're going to talk about some, some deep stuff, some deep stuff from, uh, from the Baal Shem Tov, uh, God willing, from the, from the Zohar. Um, and uh, anyway, let me just uh, tell you a couple of stories. Hopefully, maybe they'll put a smile on your face. So, so I'll just start with this one. <laughs> I'm checking out of the hotel uh, with my wife, and we had this special kind of credit card deal where they threw in $100 of uh, drinks, Right, food and drinks, but you know, like the food wasn't kosher in the hotel, and like how how much water can you drink, right, <laughs> or coffee? But but anyway, you know, we we tried to do our best, you know, using up this hundred dollar credit. You don't you don't get any of it back if you you know if you don't use it all. So anyway, I'm checking out of the hotel, and um, it's uh, I just I asked the person. I said, you know, how much of the hundred dollars is is left? And she says, um, $60. So I'm thinking, wow, you know, $60. I don't want to just leave $60 on the table. But it's sort of like, how do you... Now, you have to understand something. The, the American, excuse me, the American dollar goes really far in Argentina. Like, there's a, there's a restaurant there where it's like a famous... It's of the kosher restaurants, it's, it's the most famous kosher steakhouse. And... My wife and I, we, we didn't actually know how to order because the, 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 the menu was in Spanish, so we, we, didn't, we wouldn't have quite ordered this much food, but, but sort of we, we ended up doing it. Um, but we ended up eating it. It was delicious. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is, is that my wife and I ordered four large steaks, okay? <laughs> I guess it was some special thing where each person gets two steaks, whatever it is. A plate of French fries, Two drinks, and I'm talking about large steaks, thick steaks, okay? It came to, all together, 32 American dollars. <laughs> this is like famous Argentinian steak, you know? So, so I, I'm really trying to tell you that the, the dollar, the American dollar, goes really far down there. So, so I've got like two minutes to spend $60 if I want to use up my credit. I'm like, how am I going to do this? So there's a bar in the restaurant, and it's, you know, it's about 5 p.m. at this time. I, I don't even want to drink, right? But I'm thinking, you know, I go to the bar, and maybe, maybe I can, you know, use the credit that way. So I go there, and this bar is beautiful. It looks like it's right out of 1920s Paris. I mean, it's like really elegant and super cool looking. And I notice they've got Johnny Walker Blue Label. Now, if you know anything about whiskey, that's a very expensive whiskey. So I said, okay... Let me have a, a, a Johnny Walker blue label. So he pours me, you know, it's just like a little bit, you know. And I'm thinking, ah, that's, that's not going to do the trick. So I said, give me one more, you know, like, like, a, like a, a, an extra pour, you know, an, an extra order. So he gives me another pour on top of that, and I take a few sips. And, and, and I say to him, you know, just because I was curious, I said, how much money is that? And he says, that's $120. <laughs> and I'm like, what? No, no, that's... That's too much money. <laughs> this, this worked too well. My plan worked too well, you know. I'm like, that was a mistake. I, I, and, and he was so nice. He was like, okay, I'm just going to charge you for one pour, you know. So, 
So that worked out. That worked out good. It worked out well. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you another another sort of <laughs> crazy story. Just uh, I Sunday night after after the wedding, it was the Kutzkarebi's yard site, and um, so that that's important in my family. My wife is a, 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 a direct descendant of his, and um, you know if you've been listening to these classes, you know I. I, I quote the Kutzka Rebbe all the time. And so so we had a candle, and we wanted to light this candle. It was Sunday night. And um, we're in this hotel. This actually was a different hotel. And uh, we didn't have a match or anything. So I think, okay, let me just pop down to the, to the front desk, get a match, come back up. Now, I had gone for a match for, for something else. And, and the person behind the desk, there was like a long desk there. He had checked like... Ten different drawers, going through ten different drawers looking for a match. And then finally, you know, I'm just kind of waiting there the whole time. Finally he says to me, I, I don't have a match. And then he says, would you like a lighter? And I'm like, yes, you know, <laughs> please. So he gives me his lighter, I bring it back down. So this time I go down and, and it's someone different behind the, the, the front desk. And I said to him, do you have a match or a lighter? <laughs> and he says, uh, No. Just like, doesn't open up a drawer. He's like, no. And I had just gone down. I wasn't prepared to, to leave the hotel. I had just kind of come down thinking I'm, I was going to go right back up. So, so uh, you know, it being a foreign country and me not really knowing my way around or what the situation is, I, I was wearing a hat. I wasn't just wearing a, a yarmulke, you know, walking around. But um, I just had my yarmulke on, and I reached into my pocket. I really didn't have any, I didn't have any ID, my wallet, nothing on me, really. I, I, I reached into my pocket. I had a few coins. I, I asked him, I said, is this enough to, to get a pack of matches? And he looks at it and he goes, yeah, that's enough for a pack of matches. Now, it's about 11 p.m., and again, brand new city. Don't kind of know even what the safety situation is, but I'm just thinking, got to light a candle for the Kutzka Rebbe, so I just... He tells me where a store is a few blocks away. I walk out and I'm, I see like a bicycle heading right toward me and I'm like like a little bit afraid. And then he just kind of goes past and I'm like, all right, we'll just keep walking. So I walk and I, I, I find that store. It's about three blocks away. And he says it's a 24-hour store, but it's closed. I'm standing in front of it. And then all of a sudden I see someone stand up inside it and walk toward me. And there's like one little open window. You know, otherwise the doors are locked because I guess at that hour they did very little traffic. So, I, 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 in my terrible, terrible Spanish, I'm trying to say matches, like pack, pack of matches, and 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 I, I realize after the fact why he was so baffled by what I was asking for because I know how to say fire, that's fiero, and I know how to say paper, paper as opposed to like a lighter, right? Paper is papel. So, but what I was asking him for, in fact, was paper fire, <laughs> which is like, no, that's, that is unintelligible. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, no, you don't get frustrated with him. You're the idiot. So it's like, after a, a failed bout of trying to get a book of matches, he finally understands and, and he brings out a lighter because he doesn't have any matches. And he looks at the coins in my hand and he's like, that's not enough. No, that's not enough for a lighter. So apparently I had just enough for a book of matches, but not enough for a lighter. And he just 
sends me away. So I'm walking, and I see there's one, it was mostly residential, this part, but I see there's one little restaurant there, and I walk in, and it looks like it's closed, but I walk in, and and I again, I, I ask for some more paper fire, and they figure out finally that I'm asking for a lighter, and they haven't got a book of matches there either. But one of the guys behind the counter takes out his lighter, and I show him my coins, like I want to buy it from him. And he... He's like, no, that's that's not enough for my lighter, you know? And I'm like, all right. And then I, th- I reach into my pocket and I realize, wait, I have something else. I have two Advil. <laughs> and I put the two Advil in my palm and I stretch it out to him. And he looks at me like, what the... Like, this, what's with this guy? And he, he just hands me the lighter and, you know, he basically tells me it's a gift. And then... He points to his head and he says, explaining why it's a gift. And I understood that it was because I was wearing a yarmulke that he was making this a present to me, which I thought was really, that was like a special moment, you know? And I left the coins that I had on the table and I, I went back to the hotel like 20 minutes later and my wife was like, where were you? <laughs> and I'm like, let's just light the candle, you know? It's like... So, now I'll tell you a really, really insane story, okay? This is like, this story is like from beyond, you know? And uh, all I can tell you is I'm leaving out details. I'm leaving out details. So it's actually an even more amazing story, but this is what I can tell you publicly. So, I'm at the wedding, and I'm standing next to the chuppah, and there's you know, a very distinguished-looking man standing next to me. It's like, okay, I could go into details, but take my word for it. Very distinguished-looking man. Anyway, uh, I gave a I gave a talk under the chuppah, and people were kind of shaking my hand, saying, "Ah, oh, that was great," whatever. And I don't remember he shook my hand. He didn't, but. He definitely seemed less enthusiastic than, than, than the well-wishers around me, you know. But I was like, okay, you know, I'm not down here to impress him. You know, it's cool. You do your thing. Anyway, a couple of days later, I go to, to Davin, and I, I wanted to go to this particular place. It's on one of the nicest streets in Buenos Aires. There's the United Arab Emirates Embassy is across the way. The Ukrainian Embassy is down the block. Nice block. There's a guard in the front. Like someone had to vouch for me to get into this shul. You know? Walk in. Beautiful stained glass. You know? And like, and I notice, oh, there, there's that guy. There's that guy from the chuppah. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, so... We talked afterwards. It was like very nice, you know. I had a little conversation with him and everything like that. Anyway, so I get back to the hotel, and uh, and you know some hotels they'll they'll give you newspapers, right? So by the like the breakfast area, there are three stacks of newspapers, three different newspapers, and I'm thinking to myself, you know what would be funny, just like as a joke for myself, like if I get a picture of me. Like reading the Spanish newspapers, though I know any Spanish, right? Like that, that, that could just be a funny shot, you know? So I'm thinking just as a comedy prop, which of these 
front pages would make the funniest shot, right? And I decide that the middle, the middle one has the most Spanish on it. So I'm like, okay, let me take that one. So I pick up one of those, and I take a couple of steps just looking at the front page, and I notice that guy's pictures on the front page of the newspaper. I'm like, what is that? And then it points you to a page inside the paper where there's a full-on feature about him. And I'm like, this is written. This is, I got to get this translated. Who, who is this guy, right? So I, I, I bring it to the front desk and I said, could you translate this? Art? And they, like, I'm pointing at it. They go, oh, yeah, everybody knows him. And it's like, he is one of the most important people in Argentina. <laughs> and I'm like, well, and by the way, doing tremendous things for the Jewish people, this person. Tremendous, tremendous things. And anyway, I couldn't believe it. I, I took a picture of the front page and I tell this story to my kids. I, I text them. Okay? Now someone, again, there's more and more to this story, but I, I gotta just make it uh, streamlined. So, someone picks me up to, to take me to the airport. Right? And he, he points to this, this, uh, this picture on the wall, which, which basically has this kind of like this mountain jutting out from the ocean with like a what looks like almost like a castle on top of it and he says that is the nicest hotel in all of Argentina if you ever have a chance you should try to stay there right and I guess it's outside of Buenos Aires this place I'm like okay you know I know we're driving to the airport and everything like that and out of the blue he brings up this guy's name the, the guy from the newspaper. He was not connected with any of the story. He was not at the wedding. He was not... He, none of it. He just... And I'm like, out of the blue, I'm like, did you just bring up this guy's name? He goes, yeah, because he, he owns that hotel. <laughs> and, and I'm like, that's so weird because I said, I was just with him this morning and his picture was on the front page of the, of the newspaper today. And now you're ready for this? This is like crazy. He says... He says, I translated that article from the English to the Spanish. And at that moment, like, that's like what, right? At that moment, I told you I had texted the picture of the newspaper to my kids, right? My son sent the English version that he translated to my wife and my wife is reading the English version of the piece that he translated in the back seat at that moment. So I told him, I told the guy who's driving, right, who's a new friend of mine, right, that when coincidences happen, like, that means the gates of heaven are open. Because God, so to speak, at that moment is going out of his way, so to speak, to let you know how close he is. Because look, God is running the world at all times, right? But when a coincidence happens, that's God going out of his way to tell you how close he is. Do you understand? So if God is going out of his way, if God is, so to speak, making an effort to let you know how close he is to you, that means that that is the best time to pray. Because the gates are open. 
So I told him, you, you, have, to, you have to pray, right? The next day he sent me a picture of himself wearing tefillin. <laughs> Which is like, you know, like a new mitzvah for him. You know? Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. So now I'll tell you something else. Over Shabbos, there's a, a shul down in Buenos Aires. you got to check it out. It's called La Casa. An amazing shul. They modeled it on the Happy Minion of Los Angeles. Young people jumping, dancing on fire. Awesome shul. Awesome shul. Very much modeled on Reb Shlomo's teaching of serving God with joy. And people were running up to me, like at the davening, and saying, what do you think of the davening? What do you think of the prayer? Right? And I said, this is normal. <laughs> and I think that everyone who davens at a place like this, we have to communicate to the world that this is normal. Like, how else are you supposed to serve God if not with joy? Right? So, the rabbi there was giving a speech on Shabbos, and he tells this story. He tells this story. He says that, um, I guess when he had first gotten down to, first gotten to Argentina, got to Argentina, he lives in Israel, but he's spending, he's spending time in, in Argentina as a, as a shaliach, that uh, he took a cab ride Erev Shabbos, before Shabbos, and there was something like three hours till Shabbos, so he had plenty of time but it was like bumper-to-bumper traffic, or as they say on the, uh, on the traffic reports here in L.A., bummer-to-bummer, right? <laughs> so, so and, and it's taking like two hours, like a short ride. So, so like he thought he had a lot of time, very little time, you know? Anyway, they, they finally... And he said he had a whole conversation with the, with the cabbie. It was a woman cab driver, and not Jewish, but talking about how much she loves Judaism and everything like this. Okay, so cut to two, three years later, and um, he says he he's, he he leaves his uh, his his place, and there's a cab like right there, like stops like right as he gets there. He gets in the back seat. He looks, it's that woman. And and he says, you know something, you you look so familiar. I I I, I had you as a, as as a driver before. And she says, no, please don't do this with me because we have hundreds of people like, you know, thousands, whatever it is. It's like, please don't expect me to remember you because I won't. He says, you love Judaism, right? (laughs) And she says, yes, how did you know? And then he tells her more details, and she's like, I remember, I remember. And then they get to the, the end of the ride, and it's something like 320 Argentinian pesos is the fare, right? And she says to him, um, no, for you, we just pay 280 because she wants to be nice to him. She wants to kind of give him a deal, you know? So he says back to her, no, 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 I'm going to pay the full price. And he reaches into his pocket, and all he has on him is 280 pesos. 
the exact number that she said. So he says to her, now you ready for this? This is the reason why I'm telling you this story. He says to her, I learned from Martine, who, whose wedding it was, who heard from me, David Sachs, that when things like this happen, you have to pray. Because <laughs> this is God telling you <laughs> that God is very close. And she, this non-Jewish, you know, Argentinian cab driver in Buenos Aires just breaks out in prayer, right? In the driver's seat. Like praying to God for good things, you know? Can you imagine how connected all of us are? We're so connected. Okay, so that's, that's actually a good good uh, transition, I think, into what I want to talk to you about. Um, so we have a giant question. In, in Parshish Yisro, God gives us the Torah. It's the really the climactic moment of human history. And by the way, um, you know, those of us who we've been learning together for, for a while now, and um, if you don't know, then, then hear it now. The Torah is not a book. The Torah is not a book. It exists in book form, by the way, but it's not a book. The Torah is the fabric of the universe itself. So, so the Torah was here before even creation was here. It didn't exist as a book before the world was created because there was no time and space. So what, what was the Torah before the world existed? It was the, God's dreams for the world, God's desires for the world. And then God shaped his desires, his will for the world, and he made a physical universe out of it. So, so the fabric of reality, that's why we say whatever is going on in the Torah, if you really want to know what's going on in the world, look at what's going on in the weekly portion of the Torah. Because as Rabbi Wolfson Shlita said so beautifully, God takes the letters of the weekly Parsha and he weaves them together into the fabric of the world. <laughs> so that's, that's what's going on. There's a very deep correlation. So, so when we say we got the Torah, well, the Torah became revealed. That, that, that's what it is. The Torah became revealed. Okay? That which was always there. You know, it's like it reminds me, Rabbi Menes Friedman said so beautifully, a lot of us think that when we make a blessing over a cookie, right? Because they say that if you don't say a blessing, it's like you're stealing from God. Meaning to say that everything belongs to God. But when we acknowledge that God is the creator, then it belongs to us, right? So, so you say that the cookie is maybe not so holy, and then I make a blessing over the cookie, and then I, I elevate the cookie. Now the cookie is like holy, basically, and I take a bite, right? So that's one way of looking at it, but, but what Rabbi Freeman says is much deeper. Basically, God fills the entire world and exists beyond this world, which means the cookie is already holy. <laughs> so what am I doing when I make a blessing? I'm revealing the holiness that's there. 
It's like when you take a shower and the, the, the bathroom mirror fogs up and then you take a towel and you wipe it away. See, the, the, the physical universe, and we're going to talk about this more when we go deeper, the physical universe kind of blocks our perception of God unless you understand that there's no such thing as nature, that nature is just another manifestation of godliness. It's not a separate power. It's all just one. One of the teachings I was saying a lot down in Buenos Aires, I saw it from Reb Shlomo in the name of Reb Nachman. He says there's three levels. The first level is, it's just me. The second level is, like we're going up, the second level is, it's me and God. The third level is, it's only God. <laughs> See, we're just emanations of godliness, right? Right? The, the only thing that's truly real is God. Okay? So, so one of my favorite stories in Holy Brother, and I met, I met the father of this story, I met the person who, who put this story in. He was driving the car, and his little boy asked him, is this world real, or is it a dream? Can you imagine a little boy asking a question like this? And so the person who was driving, the father said, that's a great question. Let's ask Reb Shlomo Karlovach. So they called up Reb Shlomo, and they said, they asked, is this world real, or is this world a dream? And Reb Shlomo said, this world is real, in God's dream. Yes, these are awesome Torahs. It's awesome. You understand? It is real. You, you can't, chas v'shalom, God forbid a million times, disrespect another person because you say, oh, it's not real, or or not pay your rent, or, or run in front of a car, or do something irresponsible because it's not real. It's just a dream. That's not Torah. This world is very real. But on a deeper level, all that exists is God. And we're just emanations of godliness. That that's that's what's going on, you know? But but we have to respect we have to respect nature. You understand? Like you don't say that well, gravity is just an illusion, so I'm going to take your expensive vase and I'm going to drop it because gravity is an illusion. That's not Torah. <laughs> That's not, we're very respectful of the way this world works, but simultaneously we see beyond the illusion of this world. We do both things at once. That's what makes Torah so sophisticated. Do you understand? I'll tell you something very, very deep. Very deep. Avraham, the first Jew, was really a revolutionary. He was going around saying, there's only one power in the world. Now you can imagine, the primary dictator of the world was someone named Nimrod at that time. Nimrod was not a great guy. If everyone's saying that um, there's only one God, only one power, well... That, that, that makes the seat of government very insecure, right? Because maybe they're going to stop respecting the government, right? Just give allegiance to God. So Nimrod tried to execute Avraham. 
and he threw him into a fiery furnace. Ur Kazdi. It was, it was a furnace. And God made a miracle and saved Avraham. But now here's where the teaching starts. There was a conversation in heaven. How are we going to save Avraham? <laughs> so the angel of ice, this is recorded in the Talmud. The angel of ice says, I'll go down there and ice will put out the fire and Avraham will be saved. Okay? And then Gavriel, the angel Gavriel, who's also the angel of fire, says, no, I, the angel of fire, will go down and put out the fire. Now, fire doesn't put out fire. (laughs) But the angel Gavriel's argument was that if you have the angel of ice put out the fire, this is the message that will be sent to people. There's God, and then there's nature. And they're two separate forces. And God is stronger than nature, and God can overcome nature, just like the ice can overcome the fire. But, if the angel of fire puts out fire, (laughs) then what will be taught by this miracle is that there is only one power. (laughs) And that nature is not separate from God, Nature is just a further emanation of, of the one God. And that God controls absolutely everything, including nature. It's not separate from him. And God was like, yeah, yeah, I like that, you do it. <laughs> so, there, there, is, there is only oneness. There is only oneness. Okay, so now, now let's get into, let's get into this Torah I heard from Rav Shlomo in the name of the Baal Shem Tov. So the Torah gets revealed, and now we're on Parshas Mishpatim, and in Parshas Mishpatim, we're going to start learning laws from the Torah. Okay, besides the Ten Commandments. We have the Ten Commandments, which contains the entire Torah, but now we're going to kind of get into more more mitzvahs. So here's the question. If you're writing the Torah, let's say you're writing the Torah, what's the first mitzvah that you're going to spell out? So I asked this question to someone and and he said Shabbos. I thought, actually Shabbos is one of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) But if it wasn't one of the Ten Commandments, I, I would have voted for Shabbos also, you know. Anyway, by the way, I got to tell you something. This was unbelievable. At the chuppah down in Buenos Aires, it's a really large chuppah. Like it fit like a lot of people underneath. There were a lot of people underneath, and there was a lot of good, just. It was so good. Anyway, here's how the chuppah starts. It's Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoon. So a person with a guitar. Sunday afternoon. The chuppah begins. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Good Chavez, good Chavez. Sunday afternoon. <laughs> I heard that, and it was clear to me, every chuppah has to begin with good Chavez, good Chavez. <laughs> right? Um, so, so God wrote the Torah. 
So what, what did he pick to be the first mitzvah after this, this completely epic moment in human history, the revelation of the Torah, which was always there, the revelation of the Torah? He picks the laws of a Hebrew slave and how a slave has to relate, how a master has to relate to his slave. Now, there's some things that you, you, you need to know. The word for slave or the societal institution, let's say, of slavery in the Torah is not what it was, say, in the South at the time of the Civil War, in the American South, right? It, it, we use the same word, but if you think of, like, American slavery you're, or even Egyptian slavery, you, you're not going to get the right picture. It was kind of like a halfway house, the, the Torah concept of it. And it was mostly for people who had stolen and didn't have money to repay their debts. And so they became sort of hired workers till they finished paying off their debt, basically. And they had to be treated very well. So um, we'll get into the details or the meaning of these details a little bit more later, the, the, the depths of it. But for instance, one of the classic uh, pieces of Jewish law is that if there's only one pillow in the household between the master and the slave, the slave gets the pillow. Okay, so you, you understand it's a, a very, very different institution. Okay. Nonetheless, the master is the master and the slave is the slave. That's also true. So why, why are we beginning learning the Torah with, with these halachas, with these laws. Very mysterious. So listen to what the Basham Tov explains. He says, do you know what the first test of whether you actually receive the Torah? Remember, the, the, the receiving of the Torah is just a few lines before. Do you know what the real test of whether you receive the Torah is? How do you act in a situation where you have power over another person? That is going to be the test of whether you really receive the Torah or not. Isn't that something? Now let's, let's go even deeper. So I also heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar that this halacha, now that we've gotten the Torah, What's happening is that we're going to fix the entire world. And where did, the, where did everything go south, so to speak? Um, when Adam Arishon, when the first person took from the tree of knowledge when he was told not to. So you understand, when, when Adam took from the tree of knowledge, the Zohar says, on some very deep level, that was theft. And you see, now we're learning, the first thing we're learning after the laws of the Hebrew slave is what do you, what do you, someone who steals, right, goes into this form of slavery, right? So now we're, as soon as we have the Torah, we're fixing the very condition of the human condition, rectifying that first wrongdoing. So, I learned that that Torah from Reb Shlomo maybe a long time ago, 
I don't know how long ago, maybe, maybe 30 years ago. And I never really understood it beyond what I just told you. But now I have maybe a better understanding of what it's talking about. And so I want to share that with you. But this is my explanation. This is my current understanding. See, you have to understand something. Torah is like, I'm just talking about the methodology of learning Torah. And this is why you really have to study Torah for years and years and years, and not just years, decades. Because there's such, when you hear a big thought like that, like, wow, the first thing that we're learning with the Hebrew slave after getting the Torah at Mount Sinai is it's fixing the sin of Adam, the first person from the tree of knowledge, right? Your brain is like, it's fireworks. It's like, this is like pyrotechnics, right? And then you're so amazed by like the, like the show that you, you don't even, it doesn't even occur to you to think beyond that. What, what does that mean? <laughs> you're too busy like, wow! Right? But then if you stay in Torah learning, God willing, eventually you'll say, but wait a second, what does that mean? And then you go even deeper. Okay. So this is my attempt anyway. You see, what, what happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge? What happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what happened. See, the Or HaChaim explains it like this. Very simple, beautiful visual. He says that the world is really like, like a two-floor house. There's the upstairs and there's the downstairs. There's the heavens and there's the earth. By the way, one of my all-time favorite teachings from the rabbis in Medrash it says, you know, look how different God is from human beings. When a human being builds a house, first he builds the first floor, then he builds the second floor, right? But what does it say in the Torah? In the beginning, God created the heavens and then the earth. <laughs> first God built the second floor of the house. And then he built the first floor. Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. So, so the Orachachayim says that, that originally you had this like, imagine like a house with the bottom floor and the top floor, and a human being could go up and down at will. Adam Arishon was like a creature of light. He could go scale the heavens, come down, scale the heavens, come down. What happened after we ate from the tree of knowledge is basically this, these two worlds, if you will, or these two aspects of the same world became bifurcated. Like a ceiling got put on top of the first floor, so to speak. The world became much more physical. We as creations became much more physicalized. The world became more physicalized. And now, it was very possible not to see God at all, not to believe in heaven at all, right? Because it, it was no longer visible in the same way as it was before. And then let's keep on going further. To think, you know who's running this show? I am. I'm running this show. I don't see any other power. I don't see any other power in this world. I'm the master. 
You know, one of the amazing things, before we ate from the tree of knowledge, before this happened, it says that God charged Adam with naming all the animals. Okay? And then, that's, that's in the Torah itself, but the Medrash adds one very crucial line afterwards. God then turns to Adam after he finishes naming the animals, and God says to, to, to Adam, the first person, and what is my name? And Adam says, Adoni, my master. My master. Right? Now, it's very possible in this physicalized world, right, where you, where the, the second floor has been cut off for so long, people say, hey, you know there's a second floor. Oh, you believe there's a second floor. <laughs> you, you have more faith than I do. I wish I had your faith. No, 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 really, there's a second floor. Nah. Because <laughs> it's been so long. It's been so long, so you just buy into your current reality and you think that's all that exists. But that's... It's not real. It's not real. You know? So... So now I think I'm the master. So... So the first thing I want to say, I, I think that's maybe what the Zohar means on some level, that this, all the halachas of master and slave are fixing eating from the tree of knowledge. It's not just that it was a, the theft of it, but the repercussions of eating from the tree are that I think that I'm the master. Now I have to rectify this notion that I'm the master. And that's why I'm learning these laws about how to treat another person. Right? Because I have to understand that all of us are children of God. And I can't just buy into this idea. I have to remind myself God is the master. Right? And different ways of reminding myself. If there's only one pillow, who does it go to? It goes to the slave. I want to tell you something. I, and I, I, I think, I haven't seen this written, but my sense is, is that it, it's out there in this farm. I think it's also talking about the relationship between your body and your soul. I think in this world, the, 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 the body is the master. And, and the soul is the slave. And the question is, do you, how are you, if you only have one pillow, right? Do you understand that it goes to your soul? Right? In other words, it, I want to say something else. This, this came to me over Shabbos, and I, it's very much in keeping with what we're talking about right now. We just had Parshas Shkalim where everyone is giving, uh, you know, this half shekel, right, for, for to, to pay for the community sacrifices over the course of the year, the Korban Talmud. So, so normally speaking, we say there's the, the famous Tavar Torah is you give a half shekel to show that um, you need other people, that you need God, right? 
We need each other. We need God. I have a shekel. That's the classic teaching. But I was kind of thinking about it from a different angle. If a half a shekel is a unit of silver, you could have had a coin that was a whole coin of that same unit. You understand? If it, I'll say it again. If, if, if a half a shekel is a certain weight of silver, why not have that same weight of silver in a whole coin? And you can call it by a different name. In other words, it would still be a half a shekel, but instead of it being a half, it's a whole. So I want to say it like this. You know, one of the corruptive aspects of money, because a shekel is money, it's silver. One of the corruptive aspects of having money is that you think that you're independent. You know what? I have money. I don't need you, and I don't need you, and I don't need God, and I don't need anybody because I have money. So to that person who really thinks that they are independent because they have money, it had to be a half shekel. You had to break that way of thinking so that they understand that, that no, money is not going to protect them and not going to make them independent. We still need each other, no matter what. So, so this is what it is, you know. I, how are we looking at each other? How are we looking at each other? And, you know, it says, it says that, <clears throat> it says in Perkei Avos, don't, don't judge another person. And it's, I think the way most people learn that is, you know why I shouldn't judge another person? Because the Torah is telling me I should be a nice guy. And a nice guy isn't judging another person. Okay, that's a bit simplistic, but I think that's how most people learn it. But I want to say something else. I want to say that the Torah is telling you don't judge another person, because if you judge another person, you will be wrong. You will be wrong. Because only God has all of the relevant information that's necessary to make a proper judgment. If you're going to judge another person, you don't have all of the information in front of you. And if you don't have all the evidence in front of you, you will be wrong. So that's why don't even bother, because you're not, you're not going to get it right. So, so let me give you a, just a visual of how to look at other people, Okay. So, you know, one of the things in, in modern culture we talk about is near-death experiences. And the truth is, is that people have been recording these for a very long time. And there is a near-death experience recorded in the Talmud. And it's in Gemur Psachim on page 50, if you want to look it up. And Rav Yosef dies. He dies. And then he comes back to life. Right? 
classic near-death experience. And his father asks him, what did you see? Because he had a vision of heaven during that time that he was dead. And Rav Yosef says, I saw an an upside-down world. He said, the people who are on top here, meaning in this world, are on the bottom in the next world. And the people who are on the bottom in this world are on top in the next world. So what does this mean? What does this mean? So I came up with this explanation, and then I saw Rav Moshe Feinstein said the same thing, so I was very happy. So I'm going to put it, I'm going to put it in my words, okay? Imagine there's two racetracks next to each other, okay? One racetrack is like, you know, like a long, smooth road on a sunny day. Long, long, so like, you know, like the highway between L.A. and Vegas. Long, smooth road, sunny day. The next racetrack, which is right next to it, it's ditches in a field with barbed wire, and it's storming rain, and someone's firing live ammunition above the head of the, of the runner, <laughs> okay? These are right next to each other, okay? And then the, the referee says, on your marks, get set, go! And, you know, the first guy on the smooth road like, takes off, and the next guy takes off, and then at the end, it's sort of like, well, how far did the guy on the smooth road run? So he ran five miles, okay? How, how far did the other guy go? He ran a couple hundred yards. <laughs> so you think, well, this is, this is a wipeout, you know? It's like ridiculous. What kind of race is this? This guy beat the other guy so badly, you know? So, so the judge says, you ran five miles? What a joke. You were supposed to run three times that. And the other guy, you ran a few hundred yards? You were supposed to go a few feet. Who's the person running on the smooth road? Someone who grows up healthy, in a good family, has what they need, maybe they're intelligent on top of it, maybe they're living in a big house here, Maybe they have a fancy job, drive a nice car. They look like they're on top. They get to the next world, and the person, the, the account is, seriously, that's all you did? You were supposed to do three times that amount. What a joke. We gave you all that? We gave you every advantage, and that's what you accomplished? It's a joke. The next person who's in the muddy track with the barbed wire? Who's that? Someone who grows up in a broken family, maybe with learning disabilities, maybe who knows what, right? He gets a few hundred yards. That person in the next world is on top. That first person is on the bottom. You see, there is a competition going on in this world. We, we sense that there's a competition. It's like, what do you have? What do I have? We sense that. And you know what? It's 100% true. There is a competition going on in this world. But it's not between you and me. It's between you and you. 
It's between me and me. That's, that's the competition. That's, that's the truth. My dad was a very distinguished man, Oliver Shalom. He was a professor, he was a psychologist. And I, I never forget this. One, one time I, he came you know, home and he said, you'll never believe what I saw today. He was so excited and like, wow, like, what did you see, Dad? You know? There was um, a pharmacy on the corner of the street that we lived on, on 79th Street and Broadway, on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. He said, I was walking down the street, and there was a man sweeping the sidewalk in front of the pharmacy. And he was doing such an amazing job. And he said, I just stood there, and I was watching him. What an incredible job he was doing. And he said, and then I went up to him, and I said to him, you're doing such an amazing job, I can't believe it. And he said, the guy couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that anyone had noticed what he was doing and that anyone cared. And I just want you to understand something. My father wasn't trying to cheer him up. My father genuinely saw who this person was and the amazing effort and care they were putting into what they were doing. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Are you doing it with love? Are you doing it with care? Were you doing it with all of your might? And this person was. And my father was blown away. Where, where is that person? Right? Where is that person? Like, he's sweeping the, 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 the sidewalk in front of this fancy building. It looks like all the people in the fancy building are on top, right? He's probably soaring above them. Soaring above them. So let's finish up and just go back to that Baal Shem Torah. What's the test of whether you receive the Torah or not? How are you treating another person who you have power over, right? To what extent do you think that you're the master? To what extent are you clearing away this whole idea of the blockage between this world and the next world, between the first floor and the second floor, and seeing the entirety of everything, of understanding that God is running the world and that we're just here to love each other and to help each other and to cheer each other on and to work as hard as we can, knowing that the true, the true task is to take whatever we have inside of us and, and do the most with it, and make it the most beautiful. And, and to understand that wherever you are in your life, you can go higher. Wherever you are in your life, you can work harder. And that it doesn't matter if you're all the way up here, you can go even higher. And to understand that as long as each one of us is alive, that's a sign to us that God wants more. What follows now are some questions yeah, and answers. Yeah. Because it seems like it's it's just it's just a way to make people feel better about themselves. Because there really isn't anyone who is on top in this world. Everyone has an issue going on. Even if the guy that seems like everything's going for him, yeah, hundred percent, he's got something that he's dealing yeah. with. So at the end of the day, who's on top? It's just a perception. Right. So you're right about that. But but at the same time. Uh, you know, we live in L.A., and, you know, 
you can easily find millions of people who rank people by, you know, very superficial aspects of their life. And they'll feel very confident in, in their judgment. <laughs> so, so you have a more developed understanding. But, but that is not the normal perception. You know. And, um, you know, uh, I, I heard uh, in the name of uh, Shira Smiles uh, something very interesting that she said, you know, when it comes time for, after 120, when we stand before the heavenly court, you know, when, 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 it, when we figure out sort of like, what's your reward, so to speak? Like, if you were like a, like, a, like a good person, let's say, and everything like that, you know, most of that is actually, most of that reward actually goes to your parents because they, that's how they raised you. Your, your reward begins on what did you add to what your parents gave you. That's where your reward begins. So, so in other words, it's a different way of looking at things. We, we have to be working and we have to be adding and we have to be growing. And, and that's, that, that's the real sign. And that's, that's one of the levels that this teaching is, is communicating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but can you give us some examples? Yeah, sure. So, like, for instance, you know, one very basic example would be, let's say um, you're employing someone. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, like for instance, let's say, um, you know, let's say... Uh, yeah. Socially, it's a... Socially, it can also kind of work. Like, let's say um, you... Someone wants a favor from you, right? Like, let's say you know uh, certain parties that are going on, say, right? And you know that that person would love to know where those parties are going on. Like, that would be an example where you have information that the other person wants. And you know that they want that. And you're kind of deciding, you know, how how are you going to treat them, basically? Like, Like, you know, it's... God sort of hardwires us with the desire to be superior. You know, sometimes we feel better about ourselves when we are looking down on someone else. It's a very sort of base, crude aspect of our humanity, but it's a real aspect, and we should be aware of it. And, and, and one, a person should seek to fight against that and not to give in to that urge, you know, because... It just it's it, it really diminishes you. You think you're being better than someone else, but if you're falling prey to that, that's just a sign of your own lowness, basically. So there there are actually many examples and, and they can be very, very subtle too. But but basically I, I read in a in a Torah book many, many years ago, this person was very humble and they were talking about like one of the techniques that he used to stay humble. And I always like this. He said that if he ever met anyone who was older than he was, he thought, this person knows more than I do, right? Either they actually know more Torah or they have, through their life experience, they have learned more about life than I have. So he would give anyone older than him more respect because they know more than me. 
And if he met anyone younger than him, he says, they have less sins than I do. So they are purer than I am. So he gave them more respect as well. So this way, he had a good eye for every single person. <laughs> right? So that's, that's really kind of... There, there are all sorts of techniques. But, but they're important. They're important because, again, we're trying to get ourselves out of the trap of this master mentality. Right? And, and, and if you can do that, then you're going to le- lead not just a more beautiful life, but you're going to lead a truer life. Because that is the truth. We are not the master. Are like the first laws that we get right after the Torah is given, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. We've also heard that in the Aruch, it says that the, there's the codifying of the laws, and the first code is like, jump out of bed like a lion. Yes. And then there's also the idea that the first mitzvah in the Torah itself is be fruitful and multiply. So you have like these three instances of like first laws, so to speak, depending on how you're looking at it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you think these three have some kind of like uh, form, some kind of like basis for the rest of everything else, or if they're interrelated, or or yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, anytime you can find like you know a pattern like that, mm-hmm. for sure, there's there's a relationship. You know, one of my favorite stories about this, I heard it from Rabbi Green about Rabbi Israel Salanter. So he was the head of the Musser movement. And the Musser movement was kind of trying to do what the, in, in, in other parts of Europe, what the Hasidic revolution was trying to do in, say, Eastern Europe. The Hasidic revolution was trying to sort of like re- revitalize the, 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 the common man and to really show him how, you know, how much spirituality there was in the world and how, how, how connected everyone is to God, even if they, say, are just chopping wood out in the forest and not sitting in front of a say, a a book all day, right? So that was one revolution that was taking place. Another revolution that was taking place about the same time, called the Musser Movement, was trying to um, reinstill a very refined level of sensitivity um, for, or, or we would even call it ethics, you know, in terms of interrelationships between people. So, so there was a lot of opposition. Anytime you have something new in Judaism, even within kosher Torah Judaism, there's usually a lot of opposition to, toward it because change is very slow. And so they opposed Rabbi Israel Salanter. Now, one of the, one of the things that um, to this day that people who lead um, like a shir, like a, a, like a high-level class in Torah, is they'll, they'll put out the sources that you're going to go over before the shear starts, so that people can review the various gemorahs, the different laws, and then you do it on your own, and then the magid shear, the lecturer, will come in and he'll put it together, hopefully in an amazing way, like beyond what you had in mind, but at least you have already done some of the work toward it, okay? So, there was one instance where, uh, where, he went into a community that was opposing him and was really trying to stop him and undermine him. And what they had done was they had taken down the sources that he was going to do that day and they put up a different sheet of sources with things that had nothing to... One thing had absolutely nothing to do with the other thing. Right? So really what they were trying to do was to embarrass him. Like he was going to get up there, look at this series of non-sequiturs and he looked like a fool, basically. So he, 
he gets up there, he sees the sheet, he understands immediately what they have done, right? And he's sitting over the sheet immediately. He's sitting over the sheet and thinking for a little bit. Not long, just a little bit. And then he gets up there and he gives a brilliant cheer, a brilliant lecture on the sources that they had given him, right? So someone asked him afterwards, like, what went on? Like, when you were looking at that sheet, what went on? You were trying to put together, like, how did they all fit together, right? He said, no, I looked at it and I immediately saw connections between absolutely everything. I was just debating, I was debating with myself, do I have permission to reveal how high a level I am? It's, it's awesome, right? It's awesome. But the reason why I'm telling you that story is because is because the Torah is one. And so if you if you if you understand the Torah profoundly enough, you'll understand that absolutely everything is connected. Everything is connected. So if you can actually get it to the point where first, 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 and first then absolutely for sure. There's, there's no question. It's just you just have to think about it a little bit. Yeah. You know, you had Moshe way up there, you know, and then you had the, the elders and the, the Kohanim and, you know, and the leaders of a thousand and, the, you know, the yeah. leaders. It, it's, it's all structured in, in, in a top-down manner, but it's also very organized. Yet, the, the leader is said to be the humblest person in the world that ever existed. So, so, and he's the guy that took, that worried about every sheep, you yeah. know, that he was in charge of. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I'm the ruler of the world, but yeah, I'm also the ruler of sheep. So, <laughs> uh, what's the difference? You know what I mean? Exactly. It's kind of like all, and, exactly. yet, and then you take a guy like. Korach, who was high level, you know what I mean, and but he thought so much of the arrogance of like I am, you know, and why is he, you know, the leader, and 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 then and then you see, well, well, it's not it's not what level you on, it's how you present yourself and how you how you live it. God's on top, you know, and he's, he's right. And, that's, and it's a top down yes. line, and you know, yeah. you're putting out. Top down Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question about it. Yeah. Not judging oneself. Yeah. Is there like a true source to that? And, and if so, like how do you explain that? Because yeah. we sort of do know ourselves. Right. So, so Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says you have to look for. Um, the positive, the good point in a situation, like even if it seems like you're in a negative situation, you have to find the good point in a situation. You have to find, you have to search out a good point in another person, and you have to find the good point within yourself. And that, that teaching changed my life. It sounds just so, so obvious in a way, but it's not obvious. It's, you know, um, one of my favorite stories, uh, they say it in the name of the Brisker Rav. So he was one of the greatest Talmudists. 
And one of his gifts was the ability to take exceedingly complicated things and to boil them down into a way where it sounded very simple, right? But that was his genius that he was able to do that. So the story goes like this, that he was with a student of his, and he said some phenomenally complex thing that he had made very understandable. And, and, and so he said it to a student, and his student heard it and said, that's obvious. Mm-hmm. And the briskarav said to him, was it obvious before I said it? <laughs> so, so Rebbe Nachman of Breslov is telling us something that's going to sound obvious. It's not obvious. If you make this your, your, your regular practice to search out the best in a situation, what's positive about this situation? To search out what's positive about the person that I'm dealing with. To search out the positive within yourself. Right? This, you'll lead a different life. You will lead a different life. And, um, you know, in terms of judging yourself, it's, it's, it's a little bit, it's, it, it's a bit of a balancing act. You see, the Rambam says that if your life circumstances are going down, right? He uses the word axorius, which is it's a very powerful word. Word. He he says that if a person doesn't ask themselves, "What am I doing wrong?" that it's an act of cruelty. Axorius means cruelty. A person is doing an act of cruelty to themselves by not doing an internal investigation. So a person has to judge themselves like that, but at the same time, a person has to always be looking for the best quality within themselves, even if they are going down. That doesn't mean, so if I'm going down, I have to judge myself because I don't want to be cruel to myself because I want to try to reverse my circumstances and pick myself up. But during that entire process, you also have to be looking for the best quality within yourself that entire time. It doesn't stop. You understand? So, so a lot of life is a balancing act, and it's very important that you never stop loving yourself or believing yourself, because God loves you and God believes in you. So an aspect of believing in God is believing in yourself. And an aspect of loving God, since God is within you, is loving yourself. Do you understand? But, but that doesn't mean that therefore I'm only doing one thing. No, no, no. I can do two things at once. If I have to fix something, I can say, you know something? I can do better. I'm a good guy, but I can do better. That, that, that's what it is. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.